Thank you for listening to this week's Freedom Church podcast. We hope it helps and inspires you. Okay, so this is the name of the series, Dare to Care. Um, There's four talks. This is the second one. And we're looking at the books of 1 and 2 Timothy, particularly in the New Testament, known as the pastoral epistles, along with the book of Titus. And uh, today, or last week, saw Fergus gave us an overview of those books and, and some insight into what we're going to be talking about. Very often, those books are used in particular to talk about leadership. There's a lot of information about church leadership in particular in those books, and that is the topic I'm going to be talking about today. So the title of the talk, uh, next slide please, I think, is Caring Leadership. So it's Dare to Care, but particularly focusing on the aspect of, of church leadership. So the main focus of this whole series is actually not about leadership. It's actually about the fact that pastoral care is the role of all of us. We are all supposed to be caring for each other. But there are some areas that are particularly the responsibility of church leaders. And uh, Fergus last week identified leadership as one of the four pillars of these books. It's one of the four key things that come out of it. Now, I am not actually part of the leadership or oversight team in this church. I have been in the past, and I am a trustee but it's possibly better for me to speak on it than one of the leaders, because they'd be biased, wouldn't they? Um, so I'm not so intimately involved with it. So I could speak on it, hopefully, from a, you know, a slightly be- step-back perspective. But since my lovely wife, Judith, she's complimented me a lot, um, is part of the current... <laughs> she wants something, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> Shoes, yes. <laughs> She says, Judith, is part of the current team. I'm going to be very careful what I say this morning. Okay. So a mother called her son on one Sunday morning to get out of bed and get ready for church. And he replied, I'm not going and I don't want to. His mother said, yes, you are going. So get out of that bed. And he replied, give me one good reason why I should go. She replied, I'll give you three good reasons. I'm your mother and I say you're going. You're 40 years old, so old enough to know better. And you're the pastor, so you should be there. (laughs) Being a church leader is, I'm going to say can be, is, I've written can be, but it is a very difficult job. They do have to put up with so much. I don't know if any of you have heard Sim's testimony. He shared it at a men's meeting once about how, why he, you know, he he, he was brought up in a family where his father was a church leader. And he didn't want to be a church leader because he'd just seen how badly his father was treated and the things he had to put up with. And it completely put him off. Obviously, God had other plans. But um, I have a cousin, um, first cousin, who is a Baptist pastor. Minister's been that for, since a couple of years after university. He's the same age as me. So a lot of years, 20, 30 years, he's been a Baptist pastor. And he has put up, He's had to put up with so much because it's like being in the casualty ward all the time. It is like being, you know, on emergency because basically you get to see all the harder stuff. You see some good stuff as well, but all the hard stuff in the end, you get to experience it. It comes onto your plate very often. Um, And also, Christians, I don't even notice, they can actually be very difficult and demanding (laughs) and sometimes even downright nasty. Okay. So I hope today we'll get a better and a more realistic understanding of the role of church leadership and also the expectations we should of our leaders, our expectations, what they should be and how we can best help and support them. So if we can have slide three, please. So we're going to look what I'm calling New Testament church leadership. Um, Leadership is a very broad term. 
I mean, there's many types of leadership in a church. Um, there might be a children's leader, someone leading the children's work, someone leading the youth work, home group leaders. Um, but today, I'm particularly looking at leaders that are responsible for the oversight of the whole church. In the case of the Freedom Church, that's what we call our leadership team. It's interesting that Sim isn't here. He's in Israel, as some of you know. Um, but his, his wife's Lottie here, so I'm sure she'll report back anything I say uh, correctly. Um, the interesting thing that Paul, the Apostle Paul, gives Timothy, who was a church leader, many instructions in both the books 1 and 2 Timothy, and also in, he gives them to Titus in the book of Titus. And that's why we, you know, we can't look at those books without talking about this. There are many names for church leaders over the centuries, and there's actually much confusion, sometimes caused by the translation of biblical words for church leaders. In the Old Testament, we had priests um, and, and they, um, from ministers in the Jewish temple. In church days, we have bishops, which is, as we'll come to see, is actually a different word. It shouldn't be bishop, but anyway, that's what we call them. We have vicars, which is from the Latin meaning of someone who represents vicaria, someone who represents a superior. We have minister, simply one who ministers. We have pastor, which is again from a biblical word, which we will definitely look at this morning. Uh, we have elder, again from a biblical term you find in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Lots of different names. Are they all different people? Are they different roles? Let's look at that. We also have lots of different structures for leadership. Um, many of the sort of more historical denominations like the Roman Catholics and the Anglicans have a quite a hierarchy from the Pope down to the you know, archbishops and the bishops and the parish priests in the Catholic Church. In the Anglican, we have an archbishops and bishops and vicars and all sorts of other people in between. Um, historically, the ones that we call the non-conformist denominations, these are the ones who, don't, who are not Roman Catholic or, um, or Anglican, particularly not Roman Catholic, like the Methodists, the URCs, the Pentecostals, the Baptists, they all have various models uh, and very often, almost without fail, they're hierarchical, i.e. there is a hierarchy of leaders um, and as there's a common theme among most, most of the denominations, not all of them, of local leaders are kept in order by some other leaders who are outside the local context, you know, a wider role. Okay, I'm using paper, look, it's amazing, it's easier to read. Um, in the newer type churches like ours, the charismatic evangelical, what they call free churches, very often you'll have local leadership only. Um, they may be linked to a wider network of churches, Sometimes some of these groupings have even created a sort of hierarchy with network-based apostles over and local church leaders. Uh, New Frontiers, a particular network that did that, though we hear less about that now. But, um, you know, these are all lots of models for leadership, structures and in church. There are also various models in the Bible. There's not just one. There is the Old, temple mod Old Testament temple model of uh, high priests and priests. Um, there's, if you like, the Israelite, the people, the Jews, the Jewish people they had on model where they had leaders. You think of Moses, who was an Old Testament leader, and he appointed his successor, Joshua. We have that style, and we had a, you know, kings over the nation of Israel, um, and judges, other people at times leading the Israel. In the New Testament, we have the early church, the foundation of the, the, the organization we're part of, we're, we're in today. Uh, and there is a model for leadership, I think, that is fairly clear, and that is the one that we use, I believe we use correctly, in this church. So I'm not going to go through all the pros and cons of all those different leadership structures, which are more biblical and which are less biblical. Um, I'm going to talk about the New Testament church model, the one we use in this church, and hopefully you can then decide for yourselves which you think are the best 
leadership models or structures. Uh, they all work to some extent, some better than others. They all have pros and cons. Um, now, in this church, we call our leaders leaders. We, as Judith and Angela, we, they say they're part of a leadership team. What we really mean there, there's another, they're our spiritual leadership team. And they're primarily there for overseeing the spiritual aspects of the church life. But they do oversee some of the practical stuff as well, of course. Um, now, we deliberately, since Sim joined us, actually, we deliberately use that term leader, or senior leader in this case, um, rather than something like elder or pastor that other churches use, because we've got this, and it's true, people outside the world don't know what an elder is or necessarily what a pastor is. They might have some idea, but they generally understand the concept of leader. That's a term everyone understands, and new Christians don't understand all these terms. So we use terms that people understand, that doesn't mean their role is any different, but we just use a different word, a simple-to-understand word. But whatever we call them, there are clear roles specified in the New Testament, and not only what the roles are overall, but what some of the job description of those are, what they should be doing with their time. So let's look at uh, New Testament, some words used in the New Testament for church leadership. The first one there is elder. And although that did originally mean just an older person, in the Bible, it doesn't just speak of age. It speaks particularly of maturity. So maturity in the faith, particularly. Um, the Greek word there, presbyteros, I don't know how I'm pronouncing that. You'll find that word used in the book of Acts, the book of Timothy. We're studying the book of Titus, the book of James, the book of 1 Peter. It's, it's through a lot of the books of the New Testament. The next word we're going to look at is overseer. And this is the one that if you read the King James, the, you know, the original English or most well-known English translation of the Bible, they translate that bishop, which slightly confuses because the word is episkopos, uh, and you find this used in the book of Acts and Philippians and Timothy and Titus, and it really does mean overseer. Bishop is an invented word, um, and it doesn't really tell us what they do, but overseer does tell us something about it. It's a word that means something to us. And the last one and why these are called the pastoral epistles, partly, is pastor or shepherd. We, in most of our translations, it has the word pastor, but the Greek word is poimen, and it actually means shepherd, literally a shepherd who looks after sheep. And that is a very useful word. That tells us something about what sort of things a leader should do. So whether it's pastor or shepherd, we're talking about the same thing, and you'll find that word used in the book of Acts, in particular, in, it's used all over the Bible about real shepherds, but particularly about church leadership in the book of Acts, the book of Ephesians, the book of 1 Peter. Now, historically, some people and parts of the church have treated these as separate people, right? The elders are different from the overseers, particularly in the New Testament. Sorry, in the Anglican church, the bishops, which are the overseers, are different from the vicars, the local parish you know, ministers. Um, and, but there is a key passage, more than one actually, but I'm going to look at one in the book of Acts, that shows they're actually all the same thing or the same person or same group of people. That's certainly what I believe, and I think I'm going to hopefully prove that. There are also some other passages that don't have all three together, but at least link two of them together and in different pairs, and you can work out, actually, this is the same person. So why do we have different words to describe the same person? And it's very simple. Basically, the elder, elder is basically the word, it's the title, it's the job title, Okay. And overseer is the basic role. That is their role, to oversee the church. And pastor or shepherd is the job description. It's telling you what sort of things they should do as their oversight. And if we look at that, we can see, actually, these tell us something. They all tell us something. Firstly, they should be mature in the faith. 
um, they're overseeing, and they should act like a shepherd towards the congregation, the people they look, uh, look after. So let's look at that passage, just say it's not just me. This is in Acts chapter 20, and it's quite a long passage. I'm not going to read it all, um, but I'll read the first few verses. This was Paul, the Apostle Paul. It was his farewell message to the Ephesian church on his final missionary journey. He did a number of missionary journeys around Europe and places, and... and um, and, and the Middle East, and this is his farewell message. And Paul says this to the... Uh, well, this is, I'll read it to you. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus, so he was sailing around the Mediterranean, to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem. God had really called him to go to Jerusalem. If possible, by the day of Pentecost, from Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus, so that's a church that was in Ephesus, for the elders of the church... When they arrived, he said to them, now I won't read what he said to them, but it goes on to describe how he'd ministered and taught to them with humility and tears over the years, how he was now going to Jerusalem not knowing what was going to happen to him then, and that they would never see him again. So he then leaves them his final words, and final words are important, aren't they? He leaves them his final instructions to these Ephesian elders who were the leaders of the church in Ephesus, and this is what he said, "'For I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God,' Keep watch over yourselves and all of the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So there's the other word. They're called elders. He's made you overseers of the flock. Be shepherds of the church of God. All three words describe these same set of people very clearly. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves, shepherds protect the flock against wolves, uh, will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. There is one other word we find used in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews, which is simply the word leader, the word we use actually to describe our leaders. And it's very clear in the context that it's talking about the same people. Uh, they're leaders. Um, so they're the same people, the spiritual oversight team the, the, of, or the spiritual overseers of a church. Okay, there's a really, really important point that I want to make, and we, it's key to church leadership. And it's the fact is that whenever we find that word elder used in the New Testament, when it's talking about church leaders, it is always plural. It's never when you're talking about, so the elders of Ephesus. He didn't send to the elder of Ephesus, he sent for the elders. Whenever it's used in the context of church leadership, it's always plural, i.e. eldership, oversight, is a team role. There is simply no New Testament concept of one person leading a church on their own, whether you call them a priest, a vicar, a pastor, or whatever, or even a senior leader. It is a team role. And I don't know if you noticed the Sim does this quite deliberately. When he generally, when he introduces himself in our church meetings, he very often simply introduces himself as one of the church leaders. Now, the website, if you look on it, does call him our senior leader. And currently, we do only have one of those. Um, it's on his email footer, I noticed the other day. And I'm sure when Sim goes to other places and he has to introduce himself, he has to somehow describe his role within the team as it... You know. But... Um, he does not, in our public meetings, introduce himself as the leader of the church or say he leads the church. He said, the point he's keen to make is that, as far as he's concerned, he's very much part of the leadership team, and he wants that to be clear to everyone. 
Now, within that team, he is clearly, obviously, the only full-time paid member. Um, he is the most active member, so he has a lot more time than other people uh, to devote to the leadership role. He may also and does take the responsibility for setting the church strategy and direction, among other things. But that is his primary role within the team. The people who oversee this church are that team, not just Sim. So, next slide. There they are. Look, for those who don't know who our leadership team are, stolen off the website, Sim, Dick, Joe, Judith, and Tim. Um, there were a couple of others who stepped out. Uh, Trevor was on there for a while and Stuart Light. Um, now, we may think, if we were being a little cynical, now Sim appointed the rest of the leisure team, so we obviously chose people who would just think like him and agree with him. Actually, you'll find that's not true, because Dick was, Dick particularly, and Trevor Bond actually, were part of the leadership team before Sim joined us, and were respond, partly responsible for bringing him into, into this church. And I have it on good authority that they are not all yes men, and particularly they're definitely not all yes women. <laughs> now, now, I'm not saying that other church leadership models don't work or cannot work, but I would say they are not based entirely on the New Test, early New Testament church pattern. And some people think, well, that wasn't the right pattern. We've got a better pattern now. But I, we, we like, tend to think that the way it started was probably the way it's meant to continue. There are very, very sound reasons for having a plural leadership, a team, and if you don't have it, there are significant risks. So let's just look at some of those. The strength, and the most critical, the most important one. If you have one person and they, something goes wrong, either they fall into sin or they just seriously get sick, or who, who, who knows what. If, that, if one person goes down and there's no one there, then you have a leadership vacuum. I mean, the church can go to pieces. The church can go, go to astray. More dangerous, if they start falling into error and teaching the church wrongly and they're the only one and no one else is correcting that, then you have a really dangerous situation. Um, it can cause a church to fail completely. Um, we know places where that has happened. One person, they go, something goes wrong and the church falls apart. Uh, in a leadership team, there is internal checks between the people and balances and there are others to take up the reins if one person you know falls ill or whatever or gets trouble in their life that they can't carry on their role second one though this is very practical we do sometimes have issues with our leaders and if you have an issue with one particular leader sometimes it happens there's some other people you can go to i mean this is just very practical don't think if some so and so doesn't agree with you now, the fact is, if you go to each one of them and they say the same thing to you and you don't like it, you might start to question who really has the issue. But it's really important. There's multiple people. Um, it obviously, working out things in teams avoids extremes, avoids the chance of one person taking you in a wrong direction without really taking account of... You know, pe people, team is really, really important in any role of life, actually, but it's really important in the church. And the very practical one, one person cannot... Do it all. That's why we want to really emphasize that pastoral care is not just the role of Sim or even of the leadership team. It is the role of each of us because we're getting too big for these people who are very busy people to do it all. Now, you could argue that some of those, in particular the first two, can be achieved by other ways. So, you know, if you have trouble with a leadership or an issue with one leader, you can bring in people from outside. So, one of these hierarchical models, people from outside can, can come in and help you sort that out but they cannot possibly know the church as well as the people who are already part of the leadership team. 
Uh, they cannot be as effective when you bring in people from outside, no matter how, you know, they, because they're not there on the ground. And you, you certainly can't have people from outside helping with those last two, you know, um, day to day working out things in teamwork and spreading the load in the, in the local church. Okay, there's one other word used in the Bible of leadership is deacons. I won't say much about it. Deacons are servants. The word means servants, and it's the, these is really describing the people who have very practical roles in the church, whether it be house group leading, Sunday school, admin. There's very, very many people who are fulfilling the deacon role. Again, we don't use that term because nobody in the world knows what it means. We might understand it now, but uh, it, it simply means servant, that word, or, and it is a serving role. But anyone who is doing anything in this church, to some extent, is a serving role in the church. Okay, next slide, please. What I really want to focus on, really, is the pastor-shepherd role, because that's really, really key to understanding what leaders should be doing. Since we're looking at the pastoral epistles, we need to look at this term pastoral. What does it mean? And there's a big confusion in, with the world's definition, because a pastoral, pastoral in the world, people think you're just talking about caring for people, you know, standing alongside them, looking after them. And that's one failing. And the other thing, it, so it is more than that. A shepherd doesn't just look after the sheep. It, will, uh, it doesn't just stand alongside them. We'll talk about that in a minute. There are some term churches in the world that massively overuse the term pastor. They have worship pastors and children's pastors and putting out the chair pastors. I jest about that one. I haven't heard of that one. They use pastors because it's trying to give you some, you know, like little job title that you're senior. Let's look at it. It simply means a shepherd. And it, and it gives us a really key indication of the sort of ministry a leader should maintain over the church. So let's look at slide nine, please. Um, this, this, again, we've got two words, elders and shepherds, clearly talk about the same person, and this tells us something about that. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Elders, plural, notice. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not just because you must, but because you are willing as God wants you to be. Okay, I'm going to have to skip the next slide, I'm afraid. So can we go... Yeah, don't leave it on that one, actually, for a minute. Let's just look at shepherds. We think, in the UK, if you think about a, U a shepherd in Britain, we get the completely wrong picture, because we're talking about Middle Eastern shepherds. That's where the Bible was set. When they talk about shepherds, in the UK, shepherds lead the flock from behind with dogs. Now, if we have pastors that leave this church from behind with dogs, I think we've got a problem. Okay. <laughs> Barking at your heels. Um, apparently, if you see a man driving a sheep from... So in the Middle East, they lead them from the front. That's the point. In the sheep, in the shepherds in the Middle East lead the sheep from the front. They do lead them from the front. Apparently, if you see a man driving sheep from behind in the Middle East, that is the butcher taking them to the abattoir. <laughs> oh. It's also important to note that shepherds, they don't just care for the needs of the sheep, they also, they do lead the sheep. They show them where to go, good pasture. They feed the sheep, they make sure they're fed, they nurture the sheep, they protect the sheep from wolves. And that is why it is a leadership role, not, it is a leadership role, it's not just one of caring for the needs of people, the pastor needs to look after me. Now there are many ways to exercise these basic functions of a sh shepherd, and there's fantastic, you know, scriptural examples throughout the two letters of Timothy and Titus, 
Paul either doing this for Timothy and Titus or instructing them how to do it for the people under their care. If we have the next slide, skip two, I think. Yeah, yeah, that one. Let's have that one, yes. These tasks for a shepherd include this, caring for the sheep. That includes helping them, encouraging them, comforting them, and healing them, praying for healing, helping them with healing, feeding them. That's nurturing, teaching, training, testing them. This is all about feeding in a scriptural sense. Leading them, that includes setting an example to them, directing them, uh, rebuking them where necessary when they're going wrong. And protecting the sheep, that includes warning them, exposing false doctrines so that they know true doctrine and error, and fighting for them in prayer and things like that. And Timothy and Titus, those books are particularly strong on that last aspect. We heard about wolves coming in. Paul was warning them wolves are going to come in and attack the sheep. Uh, false doctrine was becoming a really major issue in the church, and it still is today, I'm afraid to say, and perhaps more than ever. So our leaders most carefully need to make sure they're leading us in the right way. Now, there's loads of verses that can show all those aspects. We won't read them now. I've written them in my notes, and if the Connect groups look at them, you can look up some of those verses. Biblical pastoring or shepherding is not just about standing with people and helping them. It is about feeding the truth and leading them the right way. Okay, next slide. So we now need there are good shepherds and there are bad shepherds. Um, now, we may not have time to cover bad shepherds. We'll definitely look at the characters of good shepherds. What do good shepherds look like? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the good shepherd. So he is ultimately our greatest example. Can we have the next slide? Jesus said this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's a pretty good thing for our leaders. They do that. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. It is not. It is... It's, it's not a job you do just for the money, all right, leading a church. You need someone who genuinely cares for the sheep. You should not be in it just for the money or because it's a job, but because you couldn't think of anything better to do. It is a, a choice, you know, and, it, and it's, it's a, a labor of love being a church leader. Now, the passage I read from Peter, can we have that next, also talks about the characters of good shepherds. Here we are again. To, oh, we read, to the elders among you, I appeal. We've read that bit, haven't we? If you look at the second part of the verb, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you're willing, as God wants you to be, wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you. It's not a lordship, lording it over, I'm better than you role, but being examples to the flock. There's some really key and we can't go into all those. There's some really key scriptures that tell us what we should expect from our leaders. Um, more importantly, in the book of Timothy, there's a fantastic list of qualifications for elders or overseers. And we'll just read that. And again, I won't say too much about it. I'm going to focus on a little bit of it in a minute. And Timothy, sorry, Paul wrote this to the Timmy, Timothy. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer... King James would have bishop there. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well. Otherwise, 
Uh, if someone does not know how to manage, oh, keeping his children, yeah, sorry, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for he, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now it goes on to give a similar list of rules for deacons, similar, and you'll find the similar list of qualifications in the book of Titus. But there's one thing it doesn't mention. It doesn't mention leading. These are the main qualifications of our spiritual leaders, but it's almost entirely about their character. It says nothing actually about being a good leader. It says nothing about being a strategic thinking or a great preacher or a great prayer warrior. It does, not, it does say they must be able to teach, but it doesn't even really mention any specific spiritual gifts they need. This is because their primary task is oversight, overseeing the church. It's their main purpose, making sure things are done correctly and properly rather than taking us in any particular direction. But of course, when you combine that with the task of the job description of shepherd, we do also get the leadership aspect and the caring aspect. They are subtasks of the leadership role. Um, now I have to touch on a very touchy, slightly, on a slightly touchy issue. Did anyone see a verse in that scripture that we've read that tells us whether elder seers should be male or female? Yes. Well, yeah, okay, that's interesting you picked up that one. I can't teach on this topic and ignore that, this scripture, because it is a big topic, still in the church today, particularly in America, but even in this country. And I'm only going to cover the aspects of that mentioned in these books today, and hopefully you can always ask me questions. It's something I've studied quite a lot, and I'm continuing to do that. Um, but let's look at that, what you all spotted. So slide 16, the husband of one wife. What does that actually mean? All right, what does that mean? It literally, in the Greek, I mean, in English, it says, man of one woman. Now, if you read the NIV and, and New Living Translation, which I do, and that's why I didn't give the passage in that version, it says, um, must be faithful to his wife. That is not a good translation of what's written there. It literally says, man of one woman. A husband of one wife is the best, really, translation of that. But we have to understand the society that was written to. The people being converted into the church in those days were coming out of a pagan culture which practiced polygamy. People could have multiple wives. And that to me, it's just so obvious, the obvious meaning of that man of one woman is he must not be polygamous. That is what Paul meant. So if you did come out of that culture and became a Christian and you have multiple wives, there's other passages that say, don't get rid of all those wives, you should stay away. But they would be excluded from church leadership simply because they had multiple wives. So that was an exclusion character in those days. It doesn't mean, as some people interpret it, they must not be divorced and remarried. And in fact, the new living and NIV translation must be faithful to his wife. You might assume that means that. I mean, you could read that into it, but that isn't, that isn't a good translation. Now, when you read that, husband of one wife, do you think that means that elders and overseers must all be married and not be single? Does anyone think that? You might read that, don't you? We, we, we know that's stupid. It can't, that can't be the case. So why do we think they all have to be men? Why do we think that elders and overseers must be women? And some people must not be women. Some people think that and teach that. And I've heard it taught, even in this church, when we were New Life Church many years ago, by a senior visiting speaker, I won't name. And the interesting thing was that he was using it to explain why he didn't call his church leaders elders. Um, 
he, he didn't call them elders because he thought elders couldn't be women, so he, and he wanted women on his leadership team, so he called them leaders. And I remember the time thinking, who are you kidding? Right? Just because you call them leaders, they're still in the oversight role. It doesn't matter what you call them. What matters is their function of church oversight. So do these verses really teach that women cannot be elders or overseers in a church? I don't believe so at all, and I'm going to say why. We have to understand who this was written to. Um, it was written in a patriarchal society. That was a society where men pretty much led everything. I mean, that's the, what, that's the society Paul knew, and that's the society around them. And it was written to people whose only experience was that. Women were pretty much treated as property and second-class citizens. And the possibility of having multiple wives only applied to men. The idea of women having multiple husbands would not have even crossed their mind. It was, it was no point to state it. That is why it's really important to get that translation right, the husband and one wife, uh, because it, it clearly means polygamy. So I'm going to now do something, and I'm going to apologise to the ladies for the subject matter, but I heard this example on UCB. I'm going to try and put that and bring, a modern context, bring a, an analogy in a modern context that will help us explain why that doesn't mean men have to be either married or, or, or uh, um, have to be men. So... Um, Leaders. Men have to be men. Women, women. Leaders. I couldn't think of a clearer illustration in a modern context. So I want you to imagine, not too much, a scenario in the beach, on the beach in the south of France where some ladies might just be found going topless. Don't imagine that too much. But imagine this. Imagine a youth worker that's been tasked with working with children or youth on that beach. So that's their task, and they're, they're pay, maybe they're paid there. Maybe it's a Christian youth worker. I don't know. And they've got a rule book about what sort of behaviour they should be expected to do when they're working with these young people. And let's just look. There's a hypothetical statement in this rule book that says this. Next slide, please. Rule one. Rule three. Bikini tops must be worn at all times. That's written in the rule book, okay? Do you think that implies that all youth workers have to be female? No. Or that they all need to wear bikinis. Does it imply that the men have to wear bikinis? And if the Apostle Paul read that, not knowing our culture, he might well think that, mightn't he? Oh, right, they've all got to wear bikini tops. It is a rule that we clearly understand from the context must apply to women. It only applies to women, and only women who are wearing bikinis. There is no male equivalent, and there is no need to state it to us, because it's obvious for anyone to us that's part of the same culture. And that's exactly what that thing... Paul made that statement, of, you know, they, mu they mustn't be polygamous. He didn't make to say anything about women because it, there was no equivalent rule to apply to women. So um, we are not... This is an important thing. Although the society was patriarchal, we are not trying to recreate a patriarchal society in our church. And the trouble is, when people approach these difficult verses, they do sometimes try and do that, because they, they're trying to make our society like their society. And we must understand such statements in the context of which it's written. And it also explains another thing. All, there was he, and all the people say this, all those words for elder and presbyteros and all these different words are always in the male form. Well, of course they were, because that was Paul's understanding. He didn't have any concept. And, and that doesn't imply that in our modern culture they can't be women. Um, the same thing happens. Paul often uses the word brothers when he means brothers and sisters. He's talking about all believers. He clearly included the women, but he just used the term brothers. He used the term male term because that was just the tradition of the society they were in. 
Okay. Many modern translations do actually do that. The original word is brothers, but they put brothers and sisters in there when, it, when it's appropriate. So you cannot argue something from silence. We have to be really careful not to argue something from silence. God very carefully put that wording there. And, uh, and um, if we understand it in the culture, we can see that it doesn't say women. It doesn't. It just says that men, and it's not even a rule we need today because men generally can't in this country be polygamous, um, but we cannot ignore another difficult scripture in one Timothy. Now, I'm looking at the time. I am known for going on. Uh, if you need to go and get your children, please do. I, we just need to just look at this other scripture because it is possibly more tricky. Um, so can we go on to the next one? I do not let women teach men or have authority over them. Let them listen quietly. And this is in 1 Timothy 1.12. Um, Sounds, to me, now I've got some other translations there, I suffer not a woman to teach nor usurp authority. I do not let women teach or take authority over a man. They must be quiet. It sounds like men shouldn't, women shouldn't be leaving men, but we have to be so careful with this scripture too. And that's why just reading it in English isn't really enough. The first thing, notice that Paul says, I do not let. Do you know that is a phrase he doesn't use anywhere else in his writings? Nowhere else in the Bible does he say that. He does not say you must not let. Or women must not. Paul is advising Timothy, and I think this simply implies that it was his particular practice for whatever his reasons were, and maybe Timothy needed that practice. He's not necessarily saying it must be this practice that Timothy follows necessarily, or that the whole church for all time should follow. We can't argue that it applies to the wide church when it's silent about that. But look, the really important thing is that the words have authority or usurp authority. Again, this is not the normal word used in the New Testament for authority. Uh, it is not. It's only used in that one place in the whole of the New Testament. And the Greek word, normal word for authority, is a sort of a military structure idea, you know, like a, a pointed authority of, in, 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 the, in, in the army, given my military rank. But the word here means literally to grasp or take authority for yourself, possibly by force. It even has the idea of taking up arms. It may even, in this context, have connotations of women using sexual favours to influence, control, and dominate men. That was something, obviously, Paul had an issue with. So this is what Paul doesn't allow them to do. He's not talking about women being appointed to leadership or made part of a team or women grasping... He's talking about women grasping control for themselves and dominating men. And even the word teach there, it can mean teach. It can also mean direct or admonish, even command. It must be understood in that context of uh, dominating men. So, next slide. The voice, I think as a nicest modern translation of this, where you could get some of this. Now, Timothy, it's not my habit to allow women to teach in a way that wrenches authority for a man. As I said, it's best if a woman learns quietly and orderly. And he obviously had a particular issue that he was thinking of. We don't know what it was, but the women were obviously causing a bit of a problem. And this was his thing. And there, at the end... I apologise, NKT's New Kirkland translation. <laughs> However, I think this, I personally do not allow women to do instruct or dominate man, a man, but rather to remain quiet and peaceable. And see how the translation can affect how you interpret it. That's enough said about that. It's a huge subject. And I, to cover the whole idea of biblical headship, and, and, and I'll talk about that another time, but I don't think we can use either of those scriptures to legitimately... We can't use them legitimately to exclude women from appointed church leadership, and you know I had to say that.
All right. No, I do believe it. And, and it's only, actually, I have to say, it's only since Judith was appointed leadership I really studied this for myself and got to some of these truths. I was going to say about bad shepherds, I won't. If you study it, there's a whole passage in Ezekiel 34 and Jeremiah that talks about what bad shepherds are like. Let's not talk about them. Are we okay? Just want to look at the responsibilities of sheep. Okay, uh, next slide after that as well, please. What are the responsibilities of, our, of us towards our leaders? It says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain and the worker deserves his wages. This is a fantastic passage. There's so much in that. It proves that Paul believed Old Testament and the Gospels of Scripture, because those two quotes he gives are from Deuteronomy and Luke. Um, it tells us that we should give special honor and respect to leaders who direct the affairs of the church well, but that implies we should at least give single honor to those, even those who don't do things very well. I, we should honor our leaders whether we think they're doing things well or not. It also tells us that preaching and teaching are different things. Because, uh, and, and, and people who preach and teach the word as, as leaders are, should be special honor. Um, preaching is more about the gospel and teaching is more what I'm doing this morning. Um, but it also tells us it's okay and good to financially support, i.e. pay our church leaders so that they're better able to serve and minister to the church. All that out of two verses. Yeah. We can have issues with our church leaders. We, we've got to recognize that. And we remember that it's a team, and even if we've got an issue, leaders are human, they do go wrong, they make mistakes, and they can be bad shepherds as well as good shepherds. Um, I'm just going to look at one verse that explains what happens if we get in this situation. Um, so can you skip on two slides? Skip on one slide. Not that one, the next one. Thank you, thank you. So this is the rest of that Timothy passage. And it says this. This is just clear instructions. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder against an elder, unless it's brought by two or three witnesses. But those elders who are sinning, you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. It's serious stuff. We should not gossip about or complain about our leaders behind their back. But if there is a real issue with one leader, we need to get some witnesses together and deal with it appropriately by the other leaders. We need to support our leaders. They're often under the greatest attack of the enemy. You need to care for them and pray for them. And I've got scriptures here which I won't show. They have a very difficult job. We need to follow them. And we need to submit to their authority. And we should not make unreasonable demands on them. Um, one way, you know, not to, especially on their time, to think they're always at our beck and call. Um, just want to end with this. We are all leading someone. Everyone is leading someone, whether in a good way or a bad way. We are all being observed by other believers who are not yet believers, or people who are not yet believers, by other people. And the example we set is very important. And those character qualifications of a leader in Timothy and Titus for elders or overseers are actually something we should all aspire to. We are all meant to be making disciples. The Great Commission from Jesus was not about just making converts. It was given to all of us. We're all meant to make disciples. And as we say, pastoral care is everyone's responsibility. It's not just the job of our church leaders. Okay. We want to end in prayer.
could the worship team come up? And we're, go we're going to... Um, so, actually, can you go back, uh, Billy, what we're going to pray for? Oh, is there not one that says prayer points? Oh, there it is, yeah. I just want to pray. Firstly, I'm going to pray for this, and then the last thing we're going to do together. I want to pray for healing for anyone here this church who's been, uh, who's been damaged from being in church leadership, who've been a church leader and maybe aren't now. Maybe our church leaders now and are damaged. I just want to pray for that. Pray for healing. And I want to pray for anybody here for healing and forgiveness if they've been damaged or hurt by poor church leaders, that they've been in the flock and been hurt by church leadership. And I think it might be good to approach some of us afterwards. If you want specific prayer for that, come up to Judith or I or any of the other leaders or the people with prayer team badges on if they've got them. Um, and I want us to pray personally consider, maybe we all need to repent, if we've been overly critical and supportive of this or any other church leadership. So let's just pray that, and then I want to get the leadership team up, and I just all to pray for them. That would be really good to finish, and then we'll finish with a song. Lottie, will you come and represent Sim at that point? That's great. So let's just, let's just pray for those first three things, and then do the last one. Father, I just thank you for our leaders. I just thank you that they are people you have put over us as overseers and shepherds. Lord, I just pray each of them will be able to fulfill that role to the best of their ability and with all the gifting you give them. Lord, I just want to pray firstly, if there's anyone in this church that's been hurt by being in church leadership in the past, Lord, that you would heal them right now. And if there's anyone here who's been hurt by church leaders themselves, that they would not only find healing but also forgiveness, recognizing that everyone's human and we do make mistakes. And Lord, I just want to pray that any of us who've been critical, overly critical and unsupportive of this, the leaders in this church or any other church would repent of that and recognize that you've put those people there, Lord, and it's their role to oversee us and help us be supportive as much as we can of our leaders in Jesus' name. So would, if you mind, Judith and Joe, is Joe in here still? Lottie, is Dick here? And Tim, is Tim here? Excellent. So I'll pray, but if you would all hold out your hands to these guys. So Lot, Sim is away, I'm afraid, but Lottie can represent Sim, if that's okay, this morning. And just, let's just pray for these guys, because it, their role is so important, and it is so key to the, to the overseeing of this church. Father, we just thank you again for these leaders, and we just thank you for each one of them, for Sim, and for Judith, and for Joe, and for Dick, and for Tim. Lord, and we just pray that you would enable them to be everything that you want them to be as leaders. Give them the gifts they need. Help them have the humility they need. Help them to be good shepherds and not bad shepherds over the flock of this church, Lord. And may we be stronger because they are plural and there's not just one of them, Lord. And I just pray for Sim as he's not here particularly, that he'd know this as well, that real strength as he, his role is, you know, his important role within this team, Lord, that he would know that truth. They would all know that truth, that you are with them You've put them there, Lord, and that you would enable them to be your ministers and your good overseers of this flock, especially as we face the challenges in the future, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Freedom Church, please go to www.freedomchurch.uk. Thank you for listening.